Last week we began a series on what the Bible says about leadership in the local church, and I want to continue that uh, this morning, and last week we saw that the Bible plainly and simply establishes a two-office system of church government consisting of elders and deacons, and the pattern of the New Testament, as we saw, is that every local church should be governed and ruled or led by a group of godly, spiritually mature men called elders who are assisted by another group of godly, spiritually mature men called deacons who relieve the elders of the temporal matters of the church so they can focus on their spiritual priorities as shepherds of the flock. Acts chapter 6 is a great example of that. So every church is responsible for recognizing and appointing elders and deacons who can serve as leaders in their local body. And the process of selecting and installing elders and deacons is modeled for us uh, in the book of Acts. And uh, I shared just a quick little four-step process uh, that we've drawn from the scriptures that we follow here at Lakeside Bible Church. Number one, with the ongoing input of the congregation, the elders of a church recognize men who have a desire to serve as an elder or deacon and who appear to be spiritually qualified. Number two, the elders examine them privately to determine whether or not they are actually qualified to serve. Thirdly, they present them to the church for their evaluation and affirmation, um, testing to see whether or not they're above reproach in the eyes of the body that they are going to lead. And then lastly, if they receive the congregation's stamp of approval, the elders then formally install them as an elder or deacon through prayer and the laying on of hands. Again, we've just drawn that process from what we see in the New Testament, particularly the book of Acts. So we are in the middle of the process of testing four men right now who are, uh, or, or who we presented to you last week as candidates for the office of elder and deacon. Chris DeLagula is a candidate for the office of elder. Jesse Flewellen, Jonathan Marsh, and David Taylor are candidates for the office of deacon. And as I mentioned last week, these men have humbly accepted our invitation to go through a three-week period of public testing to see if they are above reproach in the eyes of this body of believers And again, if you have any questions or concerns about these guys, um, you know of anything that may disqualify them from serving as an elder and deacon in our church, then we would just simply ask that you talk to us as elders privately or put something in writing to us and we will um, evaluate and consider any valid objections or accusations that are biblically based. And again, just to remember, this is not a popularity contest, this is not a political election Um, This is a test of character based on the principles of God's word. Now, I realize that some of you, when we announced these men last week, had no clue who these guys were. You have never met them, uh, never spent any time with them, um, which in your mind, perhaps limits your ability to participate in this process. You're like, okay, so what am I supposed to do about this? Well, keep in mind that the elders know these guys, and so do a lot of other people in our church. And so rather than feeling out of it, or like you can't be a part of this, just trust that those of us who do know know them will do their job. 
we're going to do our job. We're going to follow the biblical principles in choosing these men, affirming these men, uh, appointing these men. And as our church has grown over the years, even we as elders have had a hard time keeping up with all the new folks. And whenever we meet to discuss and pray about church matters, it's not uncommon these days for some of the elders to admit that they don't know the individual or the family they we're talking about um, or we're, or, or we're going to pray for or need to pray for. But we are learning as elders to be okay with that, that, that all the elders don't necessarily need to know every person personally. And we're okay with just simply trusting that those elders who do know them and are involved in their lives will shepherd them well. So hopefully that's an encouragement to you. Um, we're learning, right, as elders as well, um, uh, how to handle a, a growing church. I was also thinking that for some of you, um, that our selection of these four men out of all the other men in the church might seem a bit random. Why them? Why not him? Why not me? Well, first of all, our commitment as elders is that everyone who has the desire to serve as an elder or deacon and is qualified to serve as an elder or deacon should be an elder or deacon. And the reason why we say that is there's nowhere in Scripture do we, have we seen or do we see any limits on how many elders and deacons a church should have or, or um, how long they can serve. Um, so everyone that has desire but has qualified should have an opportunity to serve. Secondly, not everyone we ask to consider being an elder or deacon is uh, interested in being one. Some men have turned us down. This time and multiple times when we've asked them in the past. Um, either they, just, they don't feel called to serve in that manner, even though we see them as someone that appears to be able to serve in that capacity. They don't feel personally called to do that. Or perhaps it's not the right season in their life. They've got, uh, they're already spread too thin with their family, with other ministry um, uh, opportunities in the church. And so they uh, respectfully decline. And, uh, and so we appreciate that. We respect them for that. And then thirdly, not everyone who may want to be an elder or deacon is qualified or equipped to be an elder or deacon. All that to say, the decision of who we select as candidates for elder and deacon that we present to you is not arbitrary or subjective. Because the Bible doesn't just establish an elder deacon system of church government, it also includes systematic, objective, observable principles for determining who should be allowed or appointed to serve as an elder or deacon. And no other portion of Scripture more clearly and specifically lays out the criteria for choosing elders and deacons than the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to First Timothy chapter 3. And this morning we are going to cover the qualifications of an elder. And based on the amount of notes I have up here this morning, which are more than I've ever brought in the pulpit ever before, uh, we're probably not going to get through all these 15 qualifications that we find here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 7, but that's okay. There's always next Sunday. So let's read this together, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. 
Paul writes, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Again, we're talking about the office of an elder. Um, the, the words, there are several words in the New Testament that are used for uh, this office of overseer, elder, uh, presbyteros, episkopos. Um, this is the word episkopos here, uh, overseer. Um, again, for our vernacular, we just simply call him an elder. Or you could also say pastor. Poimain is the word for pastor or shepherd in the New Testament. It's often interchanged with uh, the word for overseer and, and um, uh, presbyteros, uh, the, the presbytery. So if it's a, it's a trustworthy statement, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil." And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And then again, we have a confirmation. There's a distinction here between elders and deacons because he goes on to give a second list uh, for deacons in verses 8 through 13, which we'll look at next week. From its inception... The church at Ephesus had been blessed with godly leadership. This is a letter written to Timothy who was presently pastoring the church in Ephesus. And Paul had founded that church and ministered there there for three years, longer than any other church that he planted. And during that time, he trained and ordained a group of godly men to serve as elders after he left. But just as he had predicted in Acts chapter 20... Uh, verses 29 to 30. Let me just read this to you because I think this is, provides a historical context of why Paul wrote to Timothy what he did here. He says to the elders, he called the elders of the church in Ephesus together, and he said, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among whom which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Again, what is the role, the primary role of an elder is to oversee uh, the flock, right? As a, as, as, a, as a good shepherd would, just to kind of keep an eye on the flock. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And then he said this, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And this is what had happened not long after Paul had left. Some of the elders of the church, some of the very men that he had appointed as elders, began to teach false doctrine and lead people astray from the truth. And when Paul was released from his first imprisonment in Rome, uh, he immediately returned to Ephesus and disciplined the, the two most prominent elders. We know them as Hymenaeus and Alexander. Look at chapter 1. Verse 18. 
This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. I believe those two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, were two of the men that Paul addressed there in Acts chapter 20. They were sitting there in that meeting when Paul said, some of you are going to stray from the truth. And whether or not they knew he was talking about them at the time, we don't know. And so Paul addressed these men. He confronted them. He handed them over. To, to, he removed them from leadership. He handed them over to Satan. And then he left his young protege, Timothy, to straighten out the mess that these bad elders had made in the church, and he wrote him this letter to help him with the daunting task of restoring proper order to the Ephesian church. And at the heart of his task as a shepherd was to replace these rogue elders and reestablish a godly leadership team. And based on the contents of this letter, some of the leaders were teaching false doctrine. We see that in chapter, chapter 1, verse 3. He tells them to remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Verse 7, here were, there were men wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they did not understand either what they were saying or the matters about which they had made competent assertions. So there, there was guys teaching that had no business teaching. Um, apparently they had allowed women into leadership positions in the church. In chapter 2, verse 12, Paul said, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. It's interesting, the, um, the, the, the qualifications of elders and deacons come right on the heels in the same context of Paul addressing the role of women in the church. And so when he gets to chapter 3, verse 1, he says it is a trustworthy statement if any, what? What's the next word? Man aspires to the office of overseer as a fine work he desires to do. In other words, let's set one thing straight. Uh, being a, a, an elder or deacon is not something that a woman should do. A woman has her place in church, uh, according to uh, chapter 2 and verses 9 through 15 there. And we'll, we've talked about that and addressed that uh, numerous times in the past. If you have any questions about that, feel free to ask me or one of our elders but I think it's just important that we establish right off the bat that leadership is male. Um, they had also fallen away from the faith. It says in chapter 4, uh, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And notice they were also forbidding marriage and abdicating, abstaining from foods which God had created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So they had become legalistic saying, hey, don't get married, be celibate, don't eat certain foods. And, and apparently, well, we know this because of chapter 1, they had to be publicly rebuked and disciplined, these elders. Chapter 5, verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. In other words, just because somebody accuses an elder of something doesn't mean he's guilty. Don't just assume he's guilty because one person saw something, heard something, experienced something. Make sure there's uh, two, you know, a few other people that could... Uh, you know, could witness the same issue in that guy's life. 
But then notice verse 22, if you find out that it is true, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. This is what Paul did. He was rebuking Hymenaeus and Alexander in the presence of all, all church history even, right? Because it's preserved here in the pages of Scripture. And then he says this, those who uh, I solemnly charge you um, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, do nothing in a spirit of partiality. In other words, don't, don't, don't cut the elders any slack. Just, just because they're leaders, you know, you can, you can kind of play hardball with the, the congregation when they sin, but, you know, kind of give the elders a pass. No, he said, don't give the elders a pass. Uh, in fact, you may have to deal with them more strongly than you do the members of the church. So what's the moral of the story here? Be careful who you let lead the church. Be absolutely sure that they're truly called and qualified to be a spiritual leader. I think that's what Paul meant there in verse 22. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. So when it comes to choosing elders and laying on hands, if you will, which was the symbolic way of saying, hey, we are choosing you, we are affirming you, we are ordaining you, um, and, and, and asking the Lord to bless your ministry uh, in leadership at this church. Um, based on what Paul said back here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, there's two basic questions that need to be asked in order to determine if a guy is called and qualified to serve as an elder. Ready? Here are the two questions. Number one, are they purely motivated? Are they purely motivated? It's a trustworthy statement, Paul says, if any man aspires or desires or wants to be an elder, it is a fine work he desires to do. So are they purely motivated? And then the second question is, are they properly motivated? qualified. Are they properly qualified? And that's in verses two through seven. The point here is that having a desire to serve as an elder is a good thing. Paul commends those that have a desire to serve as long as you want to be an elder for the right reasons. And frankly, some men may be selfishly motivated in pursuing the office of an elder or they don't, they don't have an accurate perception of their own abilities or their own character. I think that's why the second question is so critical because desire isn't enough. Becoming an elder requires more than just wanting to be an elder because that's very subjective. And that's why Paul goes on, I think, to list some very objective observable qualifications to guide Timothy and churches like ours in selecting the type of men who should serve as elders. A man's life must meet certain spiritual specifications, if you will. This, this is what we have here is a checklist for choosing church leaders. And it protects the church from men who may have a desire to serve, but who aren't qualified to serve. And again, another basic principle, those whom God qualifies, or, or excuse me, those whom God calls, he also qualifies. Those things will always go together. 
And so consequently, the ultimate test of whether or not a man is called to serve as an elder uh, is to examine his life to see if it matches up with this personal profile of an elder or a pastor that Paul painted here in these verses. In other words, this is what an elder looks like, okay? And there's 15 features of an elder, 15 qualifications here in verses 2 through 7. And you're already getting nervous, right? A sermon with 15 points. That's dangerous. That's like a preacher's, you know, you know, you, you know it's like saying sick him to a preacher. I get to preach 15 points, right? Uh, but for those who are listening, like, oh, no, we're in trouble. Well, let's look at these 15 features. Number one, an overseer then must be above reproach. This first qualification is really the, the, the overarching, all-encompassing qualification that summarizes the entire list of qualifications. And it literally means not able to be held or taken hold of. That's what it means to be above reproach, not able to be held or taken hold of. In other words, there's nothing in a man's life that anyone can grab a hold of and make an issue of. Daniel would be a great example of a man who was above reproach, right? When his contemporaries, um, uh, his, his um, fellow satraps and, and leaders and wise men wanted to bring him down, uh, they, they, they went through his life with a fine-tooth comb to find anything that they could get him fired over. And they couldn't find anything other than the fact that, they, that he prayed three times a day. And so we said, okay, we know how we'll fix his wagon. Let's just get the king to decree that you can't pray to anybody but him, and then we'll catch him. We'll catch him in the act of praying to his God. So when Paul says an overseer must be above reproach, he's saying that he must live his life in such a way that affords no one the opportunity to make a valid accusation against him. Doesn't mean he won't get accused of things. In fact, he may get accused of many things, many times. But there's no actual basis for that accusation and nothing really ever sticks. Why? Because he's above reproach. Nobody can say anything bad about him. He's, he's blameless, which, by the way, is different than sinless. You might sound like, well, man, it sounds like the guy can't sin ever. He's got to be perfect. No, this doesn't mean he's perfect but what it means is it has no obvious defect or sinful blight of any kind that taints his reputation or calls his character into question. And if he does something wrong that causes others to think badly of him or the church, he's quick to make that right. He understands biblical confession and, and, and uh, forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. And so the first thing we need to understand is that an overseer, an elder, must be above reproach. And the qualifications that follow now really um, simply define and illustrate what it means to be above reproach. And the very first one that Paul mentioned here that makes a guy above reproach is that he is the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Now, throughout church history... Bible scholars have interpreted this phrase in several different ways. In fact, I have over 30 commentaries. I know I'm obsessed with commentaries. That might be a blight on my character. Um, I, I'm obsessive when it comes to books, and I have to have every commentary that was ever written on a book. If I'm going to study it, I want to have them all in front of me so I can reference them. 
So I've got over 30 commentaries on the pastoral epistles written by godly gifted men from the past and the present, and they all don't agree on what Paul meant here. And this is one of those places in Scripture, rare, it's a rare place, um, where there are several valid interpretations that can be defended biblically. In fact, the elders here at Lakeside have an ongoing discussion regarding what we believe to be the best way to interpret and apply this phrase, the husband of one wife. And to this day, there remains a healthy tension among us regarding this issue. And we respect each other's personal convictions and conclusions, and we maintain these convictions with grace and deference to one another. But you say, what's the rub here? What's the issue? Well, this phrase, the husband of one wife, in the Greek, contains three simple words, mias, gunekas, andras, which means one wife, husband, or you may have heard this, a one woman, man. And the interpretive challenge is, who did Paul consider to be a one woman, man? Now, there's there's several different ways that that this has been understood uh, over the years, who Paul was referring to. Some say, number one, that an elder or deacon, and I'm going to include deacon in this because um, this is a shared characteristic or qualification um, that it says that uh, in chapter verse 12, deacons must be husbands of only one wife, and so this is a similar characteristic here. So it applies not just to elders, but also to deacons. So some say that an elder or deacon must have a wife. In other words, you can't have a single guy, you know, uh, uh, appointed uh, as an elder or a deacon. But I think this would clearly contradict what Paul taught elsewhere about the benefits and advantages of remaining single, right? 1 Corinthians 7. So just because perhaps the guy has the gift of singleness or, or hasn't found that one woman yet, um, and that doesn't necessarily disqualify him from uh, being an elder or a deacon. Um, you would also have to say that a man must have children then to qualify as an elder because it talks about him being a good manager of his household and a good manager of his children. I think what Paul was doing here, he just simply assumed that most men would have wife and kids. And if they do, this is the qualification. Another way to interpret this is that an elder or deacon must have only one wife at a time. In other words, this would be a prohibition against polygamy. But polygamy was uncommon in Paul's day, or at least wasn't a problem within the church. And so it would seem odd that he would be thinking of that as if that was an issue. But I would say this, this interpretation would practically apply to tribal missions, perhaps in Africa or even in Muslim contexts where polygamy is practiced, that, that if a polygamist got saved they wouldn't be qualified for for a leadership role in the church um, because they're not the husband of one wife in that regard. A third way that this is often interpreted is that an elder or deacon must have only one living wife. An elder or deacon must have only one living wife. In other words, they've never been divorced um, or if they're remarried, it was only because they were widowed. And those who take this view often refer to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9, which is right there in the same neighborhood, 
where it says a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. So they contend here that in that context, this phrase clearly means that widows could only have been married once if they were to qualify for, the welfare, for welfare from the church. But just a few verses later, Paul encouraged younger women who were widowed to get remarried. Chapter 5, verse 14, right? I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, give the enemy no occasion for reproach. So if our spouse dies... God doesn't forbid us from remarrying as long as we marry a believer. Romans 7, verse 2, 1 Corinthians 7, 39. We're supposed to marry in the Lord. And similarly, the Bible doesn't forbid remarriage after a divorce if the grounds for the divorce was adultery or abandonment. Now, now we're opening up a whole other can of worms here. And uh, we're getting in the weeds a bit this morning. But I think it's important for you to understand kind of how we think through this Uh, as pastors and elders here at Lakeside Bible Church. We know that God's design and desire for marriage is one man and one woman for life. Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother, cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And we know that God hates divorce. Malachi 2.16 couldn't be clearer. But then we get to the New Testament and we see uh, passages, uh, uh, really the words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew uh, chapter 19, where Christ permits divorce in the case of adultery. And I think this is because God, while he hates divorce, knows the tendency of people's hearts to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and make sinful choices. And so when the covenant of marriage is broken by unfaithfulness, out of love and mercy for that faithful partner, or for the faithful partner, God frees them from the bound of marriage. Now that doesn't mean just because uh, your spouse commits adultery, you know, that you've got to get out of marriage free card. That shouldn't be the way we think about this, or, or kind of keep that in our back pocket, ready to pull it out at the moment and use it against our spouse. Uh, hopefully the, the higher principle is the book of Hosea where Hosea was married to a prostitute who was uh, a serial adulterer and he continued to pursue her and pursue her and pursue her as a model of the kind of love that God has towards us as spiritual adulterers. And so I think the spiritual high road, if God forbid you ever were in that situation, that you should seek to reconcile with your spouse and and work it out, if at all possible. But if, if that unfaithful partner remains hard-hearted in their rebellion against the Lord, their unfaithfulness to, to the covenant of marriage, then I think God has mercy on the faithful partner and releases them from that bond. He does the same thing for a Christian husband or wife who's abandoned by their unbelieving spouse, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so in the same way, remarriage is permissible after being widowed Remarriage is permissible after being divorced as a result of either adultery or abandonment. I would also add this, that if a man was divorced before he became a Christian, you could argue that he's a new creature in Christ now, and his divorce is under the blood. It's almost like that doesn't count, because that's what everybody was doing before they got saved, just acting like pagans act, right? Acting like unbelievers act. 
And I'm simply saying this to say this, that if you interpret this phrase, the husband of one wife, to mean that a man who's been divorced and or remarried after divorce is automatically disqualified from being an elder deacon, then you're at odds with the rest of the Bible's teaching on divorce and remarriage. I think this phrase must be interpreted within the larger context of God's overall instruction on marriage and never be allowed to contradict what is taught in other places. And so this is my personal conviction here. This is my personal conviction since I stand over here. So you know there's a a, a distinction here. This is my personal conviction that a man is disqualified from being an elder or deacon if they've been divorced for any other reason than adultery or abandonment. In other words, if there was a lack of leadership, perhaps, that resulted in that divorce, or maybe if some other sin contributed to that divorce, or if the circumstances of his divorce may bring reproach on him personally or are potentially damaging to the reputation of the church. And because of the lifelong and often complicated consequences of divorce, I think this could even apply to a divorce that occurred before a person was saved. Again, so in my opinion, it would be an extremely rare situation that such a divorced man would qualify or that a divorced man would qualify to be an elder or deacon. But let me be quick to say this, that just because a man may be disqualified from serving as an elder or deacon doesn't mean he's not still a valuable member of the body of Christ and can still play a valuable role in the life of the church. Because he has spiritual gifts which God has given him to use to build up others, he can still preach, he can still teach, he can still serve in other leadership roles in the life of the church. But personally, I'm just not comfortable interpreting this phrase to mean that a divorce automatically disqualifies a man. I think you, you, you have to make this text say something that it doesn't say. And I just think it's wiser to take each situation on an individual basis and prayerfully consider all the circumstances surrounding a guy's marital status, if you will, and to consider if the circumstances are such that a man is above reproach, particularly in the eyes of those of his fellow church members at the present time. This is not, has been the husband of wife, but he is the husband of one wife. Which to me leads me to interpret this to simply mean an elder or deacon must be faithfully committed to his wife, period. That's what Paul had in mind. Again, that's my conviction, that's my opinion, that's my conclusion, that an elder or deacon must be faithfully committed to his wife, period. And what that means is he must be solely devoted to his wife and remain faithful to her. He's not to be in the habit of lusting after other women or flirting with other women. He's careful not to talk to or touch women in an inappropriate way. He's sexually pure. In short, his marriage relationship is irreproachable. Or you could say it this way, it's exemplary. He does marriage well. He does marriage well. And I think this view sets a much higher standard than simply saying that a divorced guy is disqualified. Because there's a lot of married guys who's never been divorced who are not one-woman men. They have wandering eyes. They have wandering hearts. 
fact, I was just thinking about this yesterday, that one of the characteristics of false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2 is that they have, they have eyes full of adultery. Interesting. So, I said a lot there, I know. But I believe that interpretation, that last interpretation, is the simplest, most problem-free, and more importantly, I think it best harmonizes everything the Bible teaches on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. So the husband of one wife. A man is faithful and committed to his wife. He has an exemplary marriage that people can look at and say, you know what, I want to have a marriage like they have um, by the grace of God. He goes on, the husband of one wife. The next qualification there, number three, is temperate. And this word literally means without wine. Now, I don't think this is talking about drinking because he later on here we're going to see he does have a specific qualification about not being addicted to wine. So what's going on here? What, is he, what does this mean to be temperate or without wine? I think what Paul had in mind here is the opposite of being drunk, which is mental sobriety. In other words, a, a, an elder doesn't allow any excess in his life that diminishes his ability to think clearly and to make sound judgments. He's to be a well-balanced Man, in all areas of his life, he must not be a self-indulgent person. He has mastery over all of his appetites. Not, he's not a slave to anything, in other words. Spurgeon said in his lectures to my students, he said to, to the young men sitting there in his pastor's college, quote, let us have every passion and habit under due restraint. If we are not masters of ourselves, we are not fit to be leaders in the church, end quote. And so an elder should not act rashly, but remain calm, cool, and collected, as we say. Uh, He's able to keep his head in all situations. He's temperate. And this is very important because elders often have to deal with uh, many serious problems, difficult situations, intense pressures, and therefore they must be emotionally, physically, mentally, and spiritually stable. So they must be temperate. Number four, they need to be prudent. Prudent. This word is similar to temperate. It implies being self-controlled or sober-minded. Uh, in other words, it, it, uh, it, an, an elder is, is to be serious about spiritual things. They're not, they're not frivolous. It doesn't, doesn't mean a guy can't have a sense of humor or, or, or has to be prudish or somber all the time saying, you know, I'm a man of the cloth. I can't do that. I can't, you know, in, in participate in that. Um, but I think he must avoid having the reputation of being a clown, uh, being a cut up, a goof off, a- acting in a way that's unbecoming of a man serving in a distinguished role like an elder. He must be sensible, wise, discerning. He needs to exercise common sense in dealing with people and their problems. He's able to see things for what they really are. He knows people and how they respond, and he also knows himself well. He has an accurate perception of himself. In other words, there's no great gap between what he sees in himself or how he views himself and how others view him. They match up. He's prudent. He's also respectable. He's respectable. 
Now, the word here is cosmos, which, which has the idea of being systematic and orderly. Um, this is where we get the word, ladies, cosmetics. So it's interesting to think about how cosmetics have something to do with systematic and orderly look, perhaps. I don't know. Um, but an elder must lead an orderly, disciplined life. Uh, he fulfills his duties and responsibilities in a systematic, orderly manner. In other words, he shouldn't have a chaotic lifestyle filled with unorganized activities and unfinished, unaccomplished tasks and plans. His life is in order, if you will. He knows how to order his priorities. Number six, he's hospitable. What usually comes to our minds when we think about being hospitable is that somebody loves to entertain people in their house, kind of get, get, you know, get out the fine china and light the fireplace and you know, get everybody to come over, and, which, which sounds good, and I think that's part of what it means to be hospitable, but this word literally translated means love of strangers. So an elder must be gracious and generous toward everyone, but especially toward newcomers. And it's really the, the elders, the pastors and elders that should be going out of their way to, to, to be looking for the new folks in the church. They should be leading the charge, if you will, uh, in making people feel at home here at Lakeside. Elders don't show favoritism. They don't, uh, they're not cliquish. They always have their radar up for, for again, for new people and, and incorporating people into the life of the church. They go beyond that, the, the smile and the customary handshake after church um, or maybe the superficial visit during the week. They lovingly and sacrificially give themselves and all that they have to serve the flock. So they must be hospitable. And then number seven is interesting. This is the only uh, qualification that doesn't have anything to do with an elder's character. This is more of a duty or responsibility. He, he must have a, this ability. Everything else is character quality. This is the only, this is the one ability, quote unquote, that Paul says he must have. He must be able to teach. Why? Because the primary task of an elder is to preach and teach God's word. That's what the apostles said in Acts 6.4. Hey, get some people to help serve the widows here. We got a problem we got to solve, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Paul was telling Timothy over and over again here in First and Second Timothy about his role of teaching. Chapter 4, verse 11, prescribe and teach these things, Timothy. Chapter thir verse 13, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. And then, of course, 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So what that means is that an elder has to have a good working knowledge of the Scriptures, and be able to clearly and accurately explain it to others and help them practically apply it to their lives. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul said to Timothy, Hey, the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So an elder must be able to teach others 
who can then teach others, who can then teach others, right? So the elders lead, again, they, they run the, 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 the first leg of the relay race, if you will, right? And they get the baton in the hands of the next guy so that he can run his lap and then they can hand it in the, and, it, and it's done through the teaching ministry. So they must be astute enough theologically that they can spot error and they can show a person why a, a, a preacher or speaker or author is, is heretical or wrong or harmful. Titus chapter 1 verse 9, this is where we find the, the second list of qualifications that Paul gave to uh, Titus who was uh, appointed by Paul uh, to serve on the island of Crete and to uh, appoint elders in every city. Uh, and so he gave him a list of qualifications uh, just like he did Timothy, and they're very similar. Uh, it's almost a duplicate list, but I like the way what he adds here kind of expands on what does it mean to be able to teach. This is Titus 1.9, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. That's a qualification of an elder. He needs to be able to do that, be able to Exhort in sound doctrine, in other words, teach truth, and also uh, expose error. Now, just because it says here that a elder needs to be able to teach, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that an elder needs to be a good upfront speaker or should be able to fill the pulpit if I'm out of town, that every one of our elders uh, our lay elders included, right, should be able to come up here and preach a message. Now, that's not the model that we have in our minds here at Lakeside Bible Church. Not every elder devotes all their time to the formal teaching and preaching of God's Word. We see this in chapter 5, verse 17. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So there seems to be a distinction there in Paul's mind that there's some elders who rule, but there's also those who rule, but also uh, do the lion's share of the preaching and teaching in the church. Some churches, you know, have set up their leadership or their pastoral team as, as they, it's a shared pulpit, right? And they've got actually three or four or five pastors or elders, and they all rotate through the pulpit, and they all take turns preaching. That's not an unbiblical model, necessarily. It, it may be just more extra-biblical, uh, it's the way they've chosen to apply these principles, which is fine. We just don't follow that uh, principle. We think that God has called certain people to be pastor teachers, right, and has spe especially gifted them to, to do the majority of the teaching. But nevertheless, I think an elder, whether, every, whether he ever stands behind a pulpit or not, they do need to be confident and capable enough to open up God's word and instruct and counsel people with it in a variety of contexts, whether that's in their leading a small group, a grow group in their living room, or, or counseling someone in the hallway uh, or in the foyer after church, uh, or personally discipling something at a, at a local coffee shop, right? They need to be able to have their Bible out, and they need to know it and know how to use it and apply it. Uh, in people's lives. So again, implied here, um, and I guess I just say this in, in wrapping this particular point up, that, that implied in an elder's ability to teach is the assumption that they are striving to practice what they teach or practice what we preach, right? 
nothing more detrimental to the life of a church than when those that do the teaching don't put into practice what they teach. In other words, it's, hey, do what I say, but not as I do. And the hypocrisy, I think, is very damaging to uh, the life of a church. It stunts the discipleship process. It hinders the discipleship process. So, again, living out what you teach is what makes you credible. It makes you believable. And so there needs to be a lifestyle, again, that follows the... the, uh, the teaching of God's word. Ezra would be a good example. Um, the scribe in Ezra 7.10 that he had committed his heart, he had devoted himself to study the law and to practice it and to teach it. He actually put the practicing in between. Before I'm gonna study God's word and then I'm gonna practice it and then I'm gonna teach it. That's kind of hard for a pastor when you're trying to crank out a sermon, right, every week and you gotta study it and then you got to preach it, and sometimes the, 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 the practicing it gets kind of lost somewhere in that rush of preparing the message. Hopefully you're living it out, practicing after it with everyone else, right, in the church. But um, maybe what I should do is just plan ahead a little better and study a message, you know, three weeks earlier and then try to live it for three weeks and then actually preach it after I've kind of put it into practice in my own life, right? Just know I'm praying that. Every time I open up God's word and start my study for the next Sunday, I say, Lord, would you please, by your spirit, help me understand what this passage means and how it applies to my life so that I can help other people understand what it means and how it applies to their life. And so, again, I think that's just the heart of an elder. Well, I'm kind of flying blind because right now it says it's five after eight on that clock, but I think it's actually five after 12. So we'll have to stop there, but we've got, uh, we only made it halfway through, and so you got to come back next week, right, to find out what the rest of these qualifications are of an elder. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, the clear instruction of your word. I know there's been a lot to process this morning, a lot of technical details um, as we really try to accurately interpret your word um, to sto- show ourselves approved unto you. Um, Lord, I know these are delicate subjects um, and, and good godly men disagree on how to best understand these passages and interpret these passages and apply these passages. And so I just pray you continue to uh, grow us and mature us as a church, particularly us as elders as we uh, wrestle through these type, types of issues from time to time that we would um, always be uh, winsome and gracious and wise and uh, never dig in on something that we know is um, an issue that we can't be dogmatic about, but is more of a conviction or opinion, or that we would be uh, hold our opinions and our convictions with grace and with deference. And so, uh, Lord, we thank you for um, your clear teaching and... Uh, Well, we pray that you would just protect our church from ever having men in leadership uh, who would not fit this description because we know that wouldn't go really well at all for this church. So we we ask you to be merciful and gracious to us in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, thank you guys for being here this morning and it looks like I got enough notes for next Sunday. So uh, come on back and I'll have something else to say about this. But uh, if you're visiting today, thanks so much for being here. Don't forget to stop by our Welcome Center. 
drop off that card you filled out, get some gifts before you leave. But uh, you guys have a, a wonderful week. Uh, you're dismissed.